God has incredible things in store for you. And so my hope this morning is just simply this. It is to just provide through Scripture and through what God's saying for us just a sense of hope uh, as we all look ahead to what God has for us here in the days to come. And so Exodus chapter 17 and verses 8 through 16 is where we'll be this morning. And it just says this. It says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at, at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up. One on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek under, from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So as we move into this passage, there's just some things that we see here that God is in the midst of using the wilderness experience to form his people. So many of us can, can, can relate to this, that there have been times in our lives where we have felt as if we were in the wilderness, that, that we've, we've, we've kind of wandered and searched and long to kind of find the promised land. And it's in the midst of that that God was forming us and shaping us and speaking to us and doing things within us so that he could raise us up for his glory and for his purposes. And so as God is shaping them, he's doing it just for this purpose, to, to display his glory among the nations. And so previously, as you kind of look at, at the first part of Exodus 17 and you look over to Exodus 16... Like you'll just see there kind of the challenges that Israel was facing in the wilderness. It included a lack of food. It included a lack of water. And so that raised up within them discouragement. It raised up within them kind of, kind of some questioning. But what God was seeking to do in this midst was just to humble his people and to teach them to simply trust him and to trust his word. And as you look later on, you're going to see he's going to give them his law. He's going to teach them how to live. And then he's going to teach them and show them how to construct a tabernacle for worship. But, but I don't want us to miss this this morning, the, the, the idea of God humbling his people, but humbling them for a purpose. You know, so often in our culture, you know, people try to, to humble people or put people in their place. But, but just the reality of it is this, is because of how our culture is so rooted in pride so often, a lot of times when we seek to step out and put somebody in their place, it's not so much to really put somebody in their place as it is to make ourselves look better. But God's not simply seeking here just to humble people for the sake of humbling them. But he's humbling them to bring them to a place, and it's a place of desperation. And it is in that desperation where they will do only one thing, and that is trust him and to trust his word. What I believe here today is that us as a church and us as a people of God, that what God is seeking to do is to bring us to a place of desperation. See, now we live in society where, where we can kind of figure things out. 
You know, there's an answer to everything. There's an answer to every problem. Like, if, if you need to fix something, you know, you can, you can look somewhere, you can look on Google and figure out how to fix it. You know, if you need answers to something, you can Google it and find out the answer. Everything's found in Google, just about. Google's like the new Walmart. And, and so, you can, like, there's always a way for you to figure out how can I make things happen and put things where I need it to be so that it works out for me. What God is wanting to do is to bring us to a place of desperation where we don't trust in our own ability, where we don't trust in our own ideas, where we don't trust in either some other man or woman or somebody else, but where we simply do this, where we seek him and him alone and we trust in him and we trust in his word alone. And as we look at this like, and journey through this passage here in Exodus, what I believe here is that we see an idea of what a healthy community of faith is is and what the essential is to a healthy community of faith and it's just simply this it is the power of God that is the essential if you're like you know, there's a lot of books written about churches you know how you can have a great church and and build a great church and and there's eight steps to having a, a great church you know and there's all of these type of things but here's the truth today and, and and like if you're a writer and you want to write a book about being a great church just I'll save you some time and effort. Just put on it, essential for a great church on the cover. And then on, on the inside, you can put 500 pages in there, but leave them all blank. And just in the middle, put in there the power of God. That is the essential. And, and in thinking about that, it, it, it reminded me of this. How many of you have an iPhone? Or a cell, I mean, everybody's got some sort of a cell phone. How many of you have one of these? How many of you, honestly... We're not going to judge you. How many of you have one of these on you right now in some capacity? In your purse? Some of the teenagers probably do. Or if you don't have it like this, you've got like the power stick so that you can plug it in. I was in New York a couple weeks ago, and it's the funniest thing in the world that people have these power sticks now, and, and they plug their phone into this power stick, and then they'll walk down the streets of New York with it plugged into the power stick while they're talking on the phone or texting or riding on a subway. But this is, this is important. Because everybody has one of these because your phone battery at some point, whether it's in your office, whether you're on, on, on the road somewhere, it's going it's gonna to start to go dead because we do everything on our phones now. And, and, and it, you walk to an airport and there are people, like if there's a plug that opens up in an, in an airport, it is every man for himself to try to get to that plug. So you can plug it in and charge your phone up and they're all looking for somewhere so that they can be plugged into power so that their phone is charged and they can use their phone. And we all have this. We all look for this. And my contention to you today is this, is that God is calling us to be plugged into his power. That God is seeking for us as a people that we would tap into and plug into his power because that is the essential for a healthy community of faith. So I just want to kind of walk through these verses and just kind of answer some questions and then ultimately tie it around to how this can apply to us and to who we are. But the first thing in verse 8 is just who are these people? Who are the people that are coming in as the people of God? Who are they? They're the Amalekites. It says in verse 8, it says the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. So you can trace their lineage back to Esau. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. It tells us that in Genesis 36 in verse 12, and there were people that inhabited kind of the northern uh, Sinai Peninsula. And Numbers 13 kind of gives you that. And they organized themselves 
very early on as kind of this nomadic type group. Uh, in Numbers 14.20, the words of Balaam says that they were first among the nations. And, and, and here's how they lived. They lived partly by attacking other population groups and, and plundering their wealth. And, and, and one of the, the interesting things in kind of reading and studying about the Amalekites, they kind of domesticated the camel and they used the camel and its swiftness to kind of come and, and, and to attack people in surprise moments. So, so they, would, they would mount up on these camels and come in for surprise attacks and, and plunder the wealth of other groups of people. And, and so not only did they attack Israel here, but we see a year later that they also attacked them again at Hormah when the Israelites had been driven out of southern Canaan and were on the run um, after kind of their foolish attempts to enter into the promised land in spite of God telling them that they couldn't at this point. You read that in Numbers 14. And so the struggles where the Amalekites continued for Israel. Uh, it, it was a continuation of a problem. It continued after they crossed the Jordan River. Now we see in the first part of, Acts, or of Exodus 17 that Israel's first enemy came from within. You know, as Moses is trying to understand you know, how to give them water and how to make them happy, he asks the Lord, he says, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me in Exodus 17 and, and verse 4. But it talks about there that they were quarreling with Moses. That They were saying, you know, it'd be better for us, you know, we're going to die out here. And so there's this kind of attack that comes from within amongst the people. There were difficulties at Marah and the desert of Sin and Massa and Meribah. And that trouble caused disbelief and discontentment from within. Church, let me just say this. That, that like, what is the answer to that? Like, how, how do you fight against disbelief and how do you fight against discontentment and so Moses was going to have to to kind of move them into this place and, and, and he struck the rock and then water came from the rock and so their thirst there was deliverance for their thirst in that moment and so that was able to kind of take them to a place where they wouldn't be as discontent where they, they would believe in that moment God was bringing them to a place to trust him but what about us today you know, some of you, you come in here this morning and you find yourself in a place of, I, I, I'm discontent right now. Like, I, I'm struggling to believe. So where do you turn? Like, I'm not going to stand up here today and strike the fan and water's going to come out for you. And, and, and so how does this happen? Well, for us as the church, it happens for us because we turn our eyes to the cross. Because it's at the cross where deliverance came, where Jesus shed his blood and died for you and I. And only rose from the grave to give us victory over sin, hell, and the grave. And so that's where we seek, and that's where we turn, so that we're not disbelieving, where we're not discontent. Because disbelief and discontentment leads to grumbling. Grumbling against leaders, grumbling against God, murmuring, and, and, and then that grumbling leads to division and discouragement. And so here we come now. So they've, they've battled this enemy from within, and now here in Exodus 17 and verse 8, they have an outside enemy. And so a healthy community of faith has to always be aware of those threats, has to always be mindful. The book of Acts, the people encountered opposition from the outside. There were threats and persecutions you see in Acts 4 and Acts 11, but they also had problems on the inside. So you see with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And so the enemy is going to come, and the enemy is going to come and seek to attack the people of God. That has to be a place where, where we just readily admit that, where we understand that, where we're mindful of that. You know, 
Peter wrote, how the enemy comes like a, like a roaring lion to seek to just take us out and, and, and to devour us and to take us out of what we're seeking to do for the glory of God. So we have to be aware and mindful that the enemies are coming. But why was this enemy fighting? Number two, why was it fighting? We, we can't really be sure why they were fighting in this moment. They, they could have felt threatened by Israel's sudden arrival or, or they could have been trying to protect their own resources or they could have just seen Israel as vulnerable, which seems to be the most likely. Moses looked back on this battle in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 18. He said they attacked Israel when they were weary. They attacked men, women, children. They attacked from behind. They had no fear of God. The Amalekites were not in the army of God. They were taking, in, they were taking orders from the enemy. Church, have you ever felt weary? I mean, you can shake your head. I mean, yeah. Felt weary, you felt broken down, you, you felt to the place of, of discouragement, and just that you can't really take that next step forward. You know, this is not the moment where you need a Tony Robbins like figure coming to tell you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But it's where we need to see a reality of when the enemy comes, and he'll come when we are weary, when we're tired, when we're worn down when we're broken down, when we're discouraged, when we're disbelieving and discontent. That it's not the answer for us to just pull our own selves up by our bootstraps, but it is to find ourselves at the altar of God on our knees, crying out in desperation for his power to carry us through. And, and so the enemy is coming, church. Like we, we, can't, we can't turn a blind eye to spiritual warfare. We can't pretend like it doesn't exist. We can't pretend like the enemy is not on the prowl because he is, and it's a reality. So the question then is how did they engage the enemy? How did the people engage the enemy? Look at verses 9 through 13 again. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. We see it here. Moses just says, go, go get some men and be prepared to fight th these men. Like tomorrow, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to stand up on the hilltop while, while you fight with God's staff in my hand. Now, I, like if you're Joshua, there's got to be this place where you're thinking, yeah, right, this is really going to work out for us here. Like there's got to be some part of you that questions the strategy, that questions the logic here. And, 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 but we see that Joshua obeys this. And there's a beautiful picture here of the power of God that we see. Israel is using physical weapons led by Joshua. Joshua was a warrior in this moment, but he's eventually going to become this dominant figure in the history of Israel. This is his introduction to us in Scripture. He's going to be one of the few that are faithful in the wilderness in Numbers 14. He's going to succeed Moses on leading them. Israel into Canaan in Deuteronomy 34 in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is going to be known for his courage and for his bravery. But before he is known for his courage and his bravery, Joshua is known for his obedience and his faith. Because Moses gives him an instruction and says, go do this. Now, logic says this is a, a dumb idea. 
This doesn't make any sense. Why would we do this? But Joshua didn't question that. Scripture tells us that he goes and he does it exactly what Moses has told him to do. It gives us a clear picture as to why then would Joshua do what God told him to do when he walked around the walls of Jericho? Because that also seems to be a faulty strategic plan of, hey, you're going to conquer this city. Well, how am I going to conquer the city of Jericho? You're just going to walk around the wall. And you walk around it, and then, and then after you walk around it, on the last time, on the last day, you know, let the crowd, like, sing out and yell out, and then you blow the trumpets, and then you're good. That's ridiculous, folks. Like that, but that's the power of God that's on display here. And Joshua's obedience and faith is what is, is clearly put here for us. So what Exodus is doing is showing us flashes of things to come. Because there would be a prophet like Moses. And there would be a warrior to fight for you like Joshua. They would all come together in one person in Jesus Christ. Exodus is pointing us and is pushing us to the person of Christ. Moses told Joshua, choose some men and go fight. Joshua chooses his team and off they go. But Moses... While Joshua is using physical weapons, Moses is using spiritual weapons. He goes to the hillside, he raises his staff as a symbol of God's presence and his promises and his power. And Moses' actions demonstrate that he was dependent on God for victory. The battle was the Lord's. Now notice that it was not by physical force alone that the battle was won or lost. Some might argue, and, and, and you read commentaries on this passage and, and other scholars that write on this, they'll say that this wasn't really prayer because there's nowhere in the text where it says that Moses was praying. But there are two definitive reasons for us to look at this and indeed call this intercession. Because that's really what we're looking at here. You know, sometimes I think like our, our view of prayer is, is, is we sit kind of in a group circle and people you know, offer up prayer requests and, and then we, we go around the circle and we pray for those requests and, and you know, we send it out kind of in an email type deal and people say, I'm praying for you. But, but we lose sight of the intercession that really defines the power of prayer and, and the power of God in our lives. And this is what this is. It's, a, it's an incredible picture of intercession because it says there that Moses lifted up his hands. That idea of lifting up his hands is an appeal to God for his power. We see it there in verse 11. When Moses lowered his hands, they began to lose the battle. To the point that Aaron and Hur helped Moses, but they came and gave him a seat, and they began to stand on each side of him to hold up his hands and to hold them steady in the midst of the battle. The result was this overwhelming victory over the enemy. It, it really kind of reminds me of a roller coaster ride. It's like, why do people raise their hands on a roller coaster, and some people raise their hands. Others of them are closing their eyes and holding on to whoever is, is sitting in. So I, I remember the very, I'm going to like trip on that stand. I remember the first time that I rode the Hulk at, at Islands of Adventure. Who's ridden the Hulk at Islands of Adventure? Okay, all right. So, you know, that's a different type roller coaster. Than, and so when it was first built, a lot of the roller coasters that you got on, they kind of creaked and cracked a little bit as they kind of went up. You remember those I mean they don't really make that many of those anymore now but so it kind of creak and crack so I was expecting this the very first time I got on on the Hulk and so I raised my hands up because that's what you do on a roller coaster and and I was a youth pastor so I was with students I wasn't gonna be that guy and be like no I'm, I'm raising my hands with the students and I'll never forget 
I, all, I hear this countdown. I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. And I hear this guy like scream like in the, in the, you know, the interaction with the roller coaster. And it shoots you out of there like, like a bullet out of a, and I, so immediately I like fling forward and just hold on for dear life to the, to the, like the straps around me thinking I'm going to die on this thing. Um, and, and, and people are screaming and yelling, like I'm sitting on, there's like this row of, of, of me and three other students and they're laughing and all, and I'm like, I'm like, what is going on here? And so, like, they, there's a, they take a picture on this ride, and so we saw the picture at the end of it, and I'm, like, holding on, like, like pulling this number. Because I, I didn't want to let go of any control. Because all I could think of was this thing shooting me out, and this little, little shoulder rest is going to come flinging open, and so I'll just hold on for dear life when it flings me out of this seat, and, and, and I, I'm not letting go of any control. But, you know, when you raise your hands up on a roller coaster, you're essentially saying, I'm giving up all control. Like, I, I'm letting go. So whether you're riding Seven Dwarfs Mine Train or the Hulk, you're giving up control. That, that's, that's, that's the symbol here. And this is what Moses is doing. He, he's saying, it's out of my control, God. And I'm okay with that. You know, so often, man, we, we are, let's, let's hold on. You know, those of you that have, have kids, I talked to a couple people that they're getting ready. Their kids are moving into their senior year, getting ready to go to college. Like, listen, I, I have a, a, a seven-year-old and, and a almost five-year-old, and I'm, like, holding on to them. I can't imagine, like, hold, an 18-year-old getting ready to go off to school. You know, and you're like, no, God, like, I trust you, but, like, you're like, let me hold on here just a little bit, you know? Like, you sure you want to go to California to go to school or, you know, to Europe? Like, let me, let me just hold on. You know, and, and, this, and we do this in church a lot of times. It's like, no, God, like, we trust you, but we're, we're going to hold on to this. And, and, and we're just going to, like, we trust you, but we just believe, like, we can hold this steadier on our own. What, what God is asking us, what God's showing us here in Exodus, is that as a church, like, we've got to move from this place to this place in the presence of God. Not out of some blind trust, like on a roller coaster, but out of absolute trust because we believe that God is who he says he is. And he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And so, you know, it's this raising one's arms. It's all throughout scripture. It's a sign of dependent prayer. Like, you can look on, look further back when Pharaoh goes to Moses in the midst of the plagues and says, you know, pray for me. Like, Pharaoh sins for, for Moses and Aaron, says, like, I've sinned this time. You know, Yahweh's the righteous one, you know, and, and I, me and my people, we're the guilty ones. And he kind of says, make an appeal to Yahweh for me. Like, he, he's begging Moses for that. He says, there's been enough of God's thunder and hail. And he's just pleading for that. He says, I'll let you go, and Pharaoh does. He says, you, you don't need to stay any longer. And in Exodus 9, 27 through 29, Moses said to him, when I've left the city, I will extend my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know the earth belongs to Yahweh. In the Psalms, it talks about uplifted hands seeking God. It says in Psalm 63, verses 3 through 4, it says, My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will praise you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. 
Psalm 141.2, it says, May my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening offering. And even in the New Testament, Paul commands in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, it says, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray. How? Lifting up holy hands without anger or without argument. That, that, that without anger or without argument, you know, Anybody's ever been angry before? Ever gotten really angry? You know, I don't know many angry people that kind of wave their hands around like this. There's always kind of this this clenched fist of anger or or in any kind of an argument. You know, we're always kind of clenching our fist, you know, raising our fist or, or, you know, kind of still clenched hand pointing our finger kind of in an argument. And Paul's saying there, you know, no, lift up holy hands and do it without anger or without argument. It's this sense of going from this place to this place of dependence on God. And so the text might not say pray, but Moses was clearly depending on God alone for victory. So so we may fight like Joshua, but we must also cry out to God in prayer like Moses. That is how we have to be. The the other thing is the idea of prayer is kind of confirmed by the last verse in verse 16. Now, Now the NIV translates this a different way because it says he said because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord and so when you you read this that seems like it's kind of pointing to the Amalekites but as you study this it seems there are a bunch of people that believe that the NIV translates this clause wrong and the NIV actually says that that the Hebrew meaning of this is uncertain and they kind of note that if you're reading out of the NIV the ESV or the CS and the CSB, they've translated this out, I think, in the correct way of what is really going on here because it says, indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. And the ESV says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And so it's really kind of a different picture here because it's saying that there were hands that were put up to the throne of the Lord, meaning the hands of Moses, hands of dependency, towards God and God alone. And that's the reason now that the Lord is going to be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Elsewhere, the Bible describes prayer as coming to the throne. Boldly, confidently, before the throne. We we can come to the throne because of the work of Christ on the cross and we're now invited to the throne of grace with boldness so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Hebrews 4, 16. And so in our battles that we're waging in life and that we're facing in life, we must fight like Joshua, but we must hold our hands up to God's throne and say, it is out of my control. It's out of my control. But you are sovereign and in control. We must go to the throne of grace and just say, help me. Just offer that up. We, need, we, we do need to be courageous like Joshua was, warriors like that. He'll take the gospel to hard places, to fight injustice, to serve the needy, to do all of those things. But if we don't do any of it in a spirit of dependent prayer, then we're going to fall short each and every time of what God is calling us to do, church. This is why as a people here today, I, like the greatest encouragement and the greatest challenge that I can give to you in the days ahead as God has purposes and plans for who you are as the people of God, it would be simply to this. Ask yourself every day, am I dependent and on my face before God in prayer, seeking him first and all of his righteousness for myself and for who we are as the people of God?
Like, what is it that God is calling me to do? What is it that God is calling us to do? And how is it that we can be dependent and reliant on him? If you believe that God's calling you into the midst of the neighborhoods and the places of Chuliota to reach communities that, that are, are being built and people that are moving here day in and day out, week in and week out, then understand this. If all you do is go and knock on doors and tell them who you are, but you haven't prayed before you walk to the door, then, then like you might as well be selling a vacuum cleaner, folks. God is seeking that we would go dependent upon him in prayer. And it's so difficult for us as a church because we look at things and we're like, no, this is really simple, God. We've got this. And yes, our own physical talents may have it, but we want God to bless it and to use it and to prosper it in his name. And the only way that comes is when we're dependent on him and him alone. So, so we have to be dependent upon him in prayer, and that must be our spirit and our attitude. So then what happened after the victory? Look at verses 14 through 16 again. He just says in verse 14, write this down on a scroll as a reminder. And he says, tell, remember to tell it to Joshua. Tell speak this out to Joshua and and so we're seeing here Joshua was going to be the successor but God says write it down why why would he say to write it down you know if anyone would have remembered this event it would have been Joshua like he would have been the one to remember it you know those of you that played high school sports like you don't you didn't need anybody to write down like I we could do testimonies right now and you could come up and tell about you know, the basketball game where you scored 35 points and you hit the game-winning shot. You could tell what everybody was wearing in the crowd. You know, and it's like, well, and why could you do that? Because you were there. You were the one that shot the shot, you know, or the football game where you scored 18 touchdowns and, you know, led your team to victory. You know, I mean, like, you know, anybody that's played high school sports, like, you can think back and remember those moments. And so Joshua definitely would have been able to recount this and the glory of which he, which he saw. So why write it down? They needed to write it down because God knew that the people were going to be dealing with the Amalekites again. That they were going to be facing an enemy again, as well as other enemies of God. So God made them write it down so that everyone might know, and everyone would have record, that God fights for his people. This is the first time that we have this idea of write this down. And God has given us the scriptures. He's given us his word to show us who he is, what he has done, and who we are. Like the scripture is a memorial of what God has done for us, and it is a memorandum of what God is calling us to do. And so it's just a reminder, here's who God is. This is what God has done for you. Here's what God is calling, and then here's what God is calling you to as his people. And so he defeated the Amalekites for the people of God. And he conquered all the other enemies. And he brought forth his Messiah. So if God defeated the enemies then, and God brought forth the, the Messiah to defeat the enemy, then God is going to fight your battle today. God is going to stand in the gap for you today. God is going to defeat your enemy. And the battle that you're in, he's going to wage that war for you today. The New, New Testament authors wrote down for us the words and the deeds of Jesus so that we would know and understand the good news of Christ. The Bible is the grand story of redemptive history. <clears throat> it is the story for us that we can stand on, that we can stake our life on. 
that no matter what happens, no matter what circumstances we face, no matter what the context of our life may be in the moment, that we can know and rest assured that Jesus is the one who is standing with us, that Jesus is the one who is fighting for us, that Jesus has defeated and has won the victory. So instead of, I've said this before here, but instead of fighting from a place of victimhood, we fight from a place of victory at all times, at any battle that, that, that we face, anything that comes our way. And this is just another reminder here. God predicts here, again, verse 14, he says, I'm going to completely blot out the memory of Amalek un, under heaven. And, and this is going to happen later on. I love in verses 15 and 16 where it just relates to us how Moses went on to build an altar. He did this to praise God and to remind the people of the power of God. Altars at this time, they were built to express gratitude. And a lot of times the patriarchs would name the altars. Jacob did this in Genesis 33 and, and 35. Moses does the same here, and he just calls it, the Lord is my banner. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh Nisi. And that, the, that word was used kind of in military context at this time. And it's a signal pole around which the army would kind of come and they would group and, 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 and regroup and rally and they would return to that place for further instructions. And so this is the place where God's saying, oh, come, regroup, receive your instructions, rally here. And for us as a people, Christ is where we regroup, where we rally, where we get our instructions. So then just finally this morning, how can we apply this? How can we apply this? Just a couple things. The first is this. Consider your need for God's power. Consider your need for God's power. There is a battle between the children of light and the powers of darkness. It's real. It's happening. It's going to continue to happen. The church is facing spiritual warfare and, and, and it's facing the powers of darkness. Paul notes this uh, most specifically in Ephesians 5 in verses 8 through 14 and Ephesians 6 in verse 12. Jesus conquered our, our, our greatest enemy, but he left us here for the purpose to proclaim the gospel to the nations. And, and so, so the, there, there are still battles that exist. There's still warfare that is going on. And so we need God's power. So you can go back and you can read Ephesians 6 and verses 10 through 12. The enemy's deceptive. He's going to use all kinds of tactics. He's aggressive and we don't need to be naive. And don't need to forget that we're in a battle. Israel's story is our story. It's what we face. They had to be redeemed. And we're on their way to the promised land. And that is our story. People of redemption on the way to the promised land. But on the way, the people of Israel faced enemies and so will we. And what Moses discovered is that prayer is more powerful than the problem. So ask yourself this question. You know, this is kind of a common phrase that people have heard before. But have you prayed about it as much as you talked about it? Have you prayed about it as much as you've worried about it? Have you prayed about it as, as much as you've been angry about it? Have you prayed about it first, second, third, continually? Are you, do you see your need for God's power? Or, in the illustration we used earlier, or are you walking around and you've got a power cord to plug in for power, but you're walking around and your battery life is on 1%, and you're thinking, I, I can make it. I can make it just a little bit longer. I can make it just a little bit longer. I can make it just a little bit longer. We have to see our need for God's power. Also, we have to consider how we get the power. And we need to look how the people of Israel got the power as a mediator. Moses interceded for them. 
On one hand, we can learn about seeking God from Moses, and on another, here's what Moses does. Moses points us to the ultimate intercessor in Jesus Christ. We have the greatest mediator interceding for us. Throughout the Old Testament, great mediators, David, Solomon, Nehemiah, but none are like Jesus. So it's like, how is Jesus this great intercessor? Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. He's the ultimate mediator. Jesus is a greater warrior than Joshua, defeating our enemies, making it possible for us to know God and to commune with him. <clears throat> and, he's, and he's the greater Moses, praying for his people. But see, here's the beauty of this. Moses had to have people come around to hold his hands up in, in, in the midst of the battle, but Jesus doesn't have to have his arms raised by anyone. He doesn't get tired of interceding for us. Moses' hands grew weary, as we see in verse 12 of Exodus 17, but Jesus always lives to intercede for us, Hebrews 7, 25. Jesus does exactly what Moses did and then some. So while we fight the good fight, he intercedes for us. I love Romans 8, 34. It just gives us kind of this wonder of the intercession of the Son of God on our behalf. So, so we have to consider where do we get the power? We're plugged in to Christ in the midst of that power. Finally, just this. I just ask you to consider Isaiah 11.10. It just says this. It says, On that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will seek him, and his resting place will be glorious. The Lord is our banner as well. But in a way that Moses could have never really imagined. And that's why I, I, I just, I look around the room and there's so many college students that are part of our ministry. But I look around the room and I just see people that I know, people that I've gotten to know over the course of my year being here. And my heart is filled with just such love and joy for who you are as a people. And here's why. It's because here we stand a few months later on the precipice of God taking this place and you as a people and us as his people into something that is immeasurably more than what we could ever think or imagine. And, and here's what I love about it is that it was never about Cross Life Church is our banner. It was never about that Herb Long was our banner. Although Herb probably would like a banner. But it was never about a place that we met with AC, without AC. But as I look around the room and I see what God has done and God is going to do, I love the hope and the reality that what exists in this place is that the Lord is our banner. And so church, as you move forward, here's, here's what you know, somebody said, are you going to tell them to pray for Doug? Well, I'm not going to tell you to pray for Doug because you're already praying for Doug. You don't need me to tell you to do that. And, and, and Nan asked me, my wife, she said, she said so what, what, what's, your, like, what's your tag? What are you going to say? How are you going to close it out and, uh, and bring it around to them? And I would just say this. Here was, here's my encouragement to you. Here's my prayer and here's my hope. Is that you would remain steadfast to do the thing that you have done as a people since God set you apart for his purposes and plans to reach this area for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that would simply be this. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.
because he is your banner. He is your banner. Jesus Christ is the banner for who you are as the people of God. He is the one who you rally to. People from every nation, from every walk, from every neighborhood, from every situation of life. It's around the cross of Jesus that we are unified here and encouraged and instructed in this place. It's through Jesus Christ that we experience victory. Victory, ultimate, forever victory. And apart from his work and apart from his intercession, there is no hope. We cannot ever detach ourselves and unplug ourselves from the power of God. We must remain plugged in, eyes fixed, hearts steadfast for the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ. So I just want to pray for you here in this time. Just heads bowed and eyes closed. I just really kind of want to be real specific in this time of prayer here this morning. And first just, just say, maybe you're here today and you've come in and you're like, Tim, I have no victory. I have no assurance. I have no confidence. I have no boldness. And, and, and your honest reply would just simply be because I don't, I don't have Jesus. And so if that's you, I, I, all you have to do is just pray, just lift up to the throne of God with dependent hands raised to him and just simply say this, Jesus, I need you. I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I need life. Would you lift me up and rescue me in the power of your name? save me from my sins I think there's other people that you come in the room you're like man Tim I, I, I'm discouraged like I, I'm walking with God and, and, and but man I, I feel like I've been left alone in the wilderness I just want to know would you just plug in to the power of God here you just see that you have a need for power and understand where that power comes from and just maybe for the first time in a long time just unclench your hands and lift them up in dependency to the throne of God whatever it is lay it at his feet finally church just want us to take time just simply to, to pray for one another in this room for who we are as a community of faith and as the people of God and as his church as I said earlier I just believe the great expectancy of what God has in store and what God is already doing and what God is seeking to do just, you know, as you think uh, of the people that are sitting on your right and on your left, you just lift them up this morning. 
just pray that, that those people, the people that are behind you, in front of you, all around you, that who we are, that we would just simply be a people that are dependent on God and God alone. Father, we're so overwhelmed not just by who you are, by what you've done and what you're calling us to do. God, I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is doing a work in our midst, in individuals' lives, and in the life of who we are as a church. God, you are doing immeasurably more than what we could ever think or imagine to the glory of your name. But I pray, God, that we would never lose sight of that. That there would never be a moment, that there would never be a time when we try to kind of plug into our own power, but God, that we would simply be reliant and desperate for your power, that we would trust fully in who you are, that we would stand confidently on the truth of your word, that God, that we would move out in boldness to declare that truth to the person next door all the way to the end of the earth. God, that we would do it with eyes fixed on Jesus and with a declaration as a people of God that the Lord is my banner. And we find our hope in you alone. And we find our joy in you alone. And we be empowered and equipped through you and you alone. Father, we thank you for who you are in Jesus' name. It's just a time now for us to just kind of celebrate that. Just to simply praise the name of the Lord our God. This altar is always open for you to come and pray. I know you have men here that lead you well. If you need somebody to pray with you, I'll be here at the front. Elijah's here. Some of your other men are here as well. Uh, but just for us to just declare who Jesus is what we believe he's doing here in this place. So just as Patrick leads, would you stand? This altar is open for you to come and pray, but let's just declare Jesus' name.